Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Michelle Obama says she's, quote, terrified about what 2024 election results will bring. The lead starts right now. A crucial week before the caucuses in Iowa and the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, he's not there. He's in New York. He's preparing for court and he's filing an audacious motion to try to throw out one of the cases against him and falsely calling January 6 criminals hostages. Plus, a CNN correspondent embedded with a group of migrants trying to get across the U.S. border from Mexico, a desperate journey. But please note, they're not from Latin America. These migrants are from China. And it could be the smoking gun in the investigation into what went so wrong on that Alaska Airlines flight. A missing door found in an Oregon backyard. What did Alaska Airlines know about the risks to this plane and its 177 passengers and crew? Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper. It is just one week. One week, yes, only seven days until the first voters get their say. Forget the pundits, forget the pollsters. The voters get their say in the 2024 election. Next Monday, Republicans will gather across Iowa and they will caucus for their favorite candidates. But in this final stretch, the leading Republican contender is once again off the campaign trail because of his mountain of legal issues. Tomorrow, Donald Trump is expected to be in court as his lawyers face off with special counsel Jack Smith over claims of presidential immunity. That is whether Trump can be prosecuted for any alleged crimes he committed while he was president of the United States. And ahead of that hearing, Donald Trump's team today moved to get his Georgia election subversion case thrown out on the same grounds. Immunity. We're going to start with CNN chief legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed with us here in studio. And Paula, Trump says he wants his Georgia subversion case dismissed because he had presidential immunity. What exactly is his legal team arguing? They're arguing everything, Jake. They're throwing every possible constitutional argument at the wall, but it's unclear if any of them are going to stick. Uh, they reiterate their argument that he should not be charged because he has presidential immunity. They insist that the charges are based on things he was doing as part of his official work as president. They argue that talking to state-level officials about the process of the election, that that is something that a president does. But so far, this immunity argument, this has been rejected at the federal trial level. And it was also litigated so many similar issues for his former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And the appeals court also found that, look, things you do related to the election, those are not granted protections. Now, they also argue under the supremacy clause that states cannot interfere with your federal duties. Similar arguments already thrown out related to the Mark Meadows case. They also argue double jeopardy. 
that he's already been impeached uh, and tried in the Senate. But of course, an impeachment, that is a very different process than a criminal trial. Lastly, they're also arguing due process, that he lacks sufficient notice that his baseless claims of election fraud could potentially expose him uh, to, to criminal jeopardy. But look, even if they don't win here on the constitutional merits, if the strategy is to delay, 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 which we know that's a big part of the strategy, yeah. and ultimately they win just by litigating this. Let's bring in CNN's Kristen Holmes, who covers uh, the Trump campaign. This remarkable intersection of the courtroom and the campaign trail for Donald Trump once again on display just seven days before the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, Jake, but we've got a note here. He is choosing to do this. He does not have to be in court. This idea of quote unquote juggling between him and his team, between the campaign and the courtroom, that's really not applicable here because it is not mandatory. What he is doing, and we'll take a look at the schedule here. Monday, tonight, he is coming to Washington, D.C. so that he can be part of his legal team's arguments in that D.C. appeals court on the immunity claim. Then he is going to Iowa the next day for a Fox Town Hall. After that, he is back in court for the New York civil fraud case to hear the closing arguments there. And then it's back to Iowa to finish campaigning. He does not have to do this. He is using this as an opportunity. One, yes, he does care about these two cases, particularly more than any of the other cases. He believes strongly that he had presidential immunity. Obviously, we know that the New York civil case, we've reported this multiple times, is key to his identity, both as a person and a politician. He has gone to multiple appearances there. However, he doesn't have to do this. They want the oxygen <laughs> taken out of this race. They want the attention that comes with Donald Trump going to court. But I will tell you one thing. I am not sure that they have thought through what court in D.C. looks like compared to court in New York. There is not the same circus and the same fanfare. He is likely to go into a garage. He, there are no helicopters allowed anywhere. None of that aerial coverage because of Washington. There's right. a total TFR on all of it. The fact that they can't have anyone inside the court. There are no cameras there. No. There are no microphones for him to walk out to in the middle. And then he goes back into his car and goes to the airport. So... Unclear how this is going to play out because it's not going to be the same circus that we're probably going to see on Thursday and that we've seen in the past. And Paula, as Kristen mentioned, uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals will be hearing Trump's claim of presidential immunity related to Jack Smith's January 6th case. It's yeah. different from the Georgia case, although similar in some ways. What do we expect from that hearing? You're right. So it's the same argument. He's once again arguing immunity, but now it's made it up to the appellate court. And to Kristen's point, I don't think this is going to play out exactly how Trump expects, because the federal courts, particularly in D.C., it's very buttoned down, very locked down. But this is about as exciting uh, as appellate arguments get. The special counsel uh, will have about 20 minutes. Trump lawyer will have about 20 minutes to argue if Trump does or does not have immunity. But the judges can make this hearing last as long uh, as they want. They'll jump in with all kinds of questions. There's three judges, but it's not televised. The audio uh, is streamed so people can listen to the questions. But this is nothing like, I think, the circus uh, that Trump would hope to We're control and capitalize. Though. Oh, we are getting but sketches. A lost a lot later, art form so. <laughs> uh, the courtroom sketches. Uh, and you got to be careful because if you get a bad sketch artist, he may not like his sketch. We saw what they did to Tom Brady. Um, but at the court, well, not to mention, also, just on the courtroom sketch thing, remember, one of them was so angry, the New Yorker made it the cover of the magazine. Remember that, yes, that yes, courtroom yes, sketch? Yes, yeah. I remember Sorry that. I mean, when, but look, we don't, this is, I guess, another argument for cameras in the courtroom, right? But we rely on our sketch artists. It's harder to control the narrative. It's not, it's not as exciting as Trump might expect. But at the core is a key constitutional question. Does he have presidential immunity? Former members of his team tell me, look, this is not their strongest argument. But by showing up tomorrow, not only does he bring more attention to it, but could maybe with his base bolster this argument that he is the victim of the court system.
I mean, what, what does this all mean for the Iowa campaign at all? It's just hopping back and forth. Here's what they're thinking is right now. We've seen the polls. He has a huge margin. There is a lot of skepticism, even among his own campaign, that the margins are that big in Iowa, but they do feel comfortable. They feel as though he is going to win. Now, what they are doing right now, I'm being told, is tempering expectations. One, I think we've all seen the weather report in Des Moines. It is going to be negative 10 degrees. There is some concern among all the campaigns that it's going to be lower than expected turnout. But that's really what I'm hearing from his advisors and on the ground is like, let's temper expectations, not go into the saying he's going to win by 35 points. But in terms of actually winning, they do believe he's going to walk away with Iowa. It's yeah. wild, though, that he'll be here. Like, why not go to Iowa, hand out, you know, hand warmers and things like that instead? Well, here? that's the whole wild. point. I mean, when he goes up to the camera in New York, he says, I'd rather be campaigning, but I have to be here. But the truth is, he doesn't he have doesn't. to be there. He doesn't have he, to he be there. He enjoys going to the courtroom. He enjoys hearing these arguments. He really does actually enjoy that part of being in the courtroom. Very interesting. Paula Reed, Kristen Holmes, thanks to both of you. Ahead of this trip. To the courtroom, Donald Trump is urging his supporters in Iowa to not take polls for granted, as you just heard from Kristen, and to show up to hand him a resounding victory next week. And as CNN's Kylie Atwood reports for us right now, Trump also is ramping up the attacks on former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor Nikki Haley. Hello, Iowa. With the Iowa caucuses just one week away, the Republican frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, is urging his supporters not to grow complacent. You're only about 40 points up, but don't believe that either. Pretend you're one point down, okay? You're one point down. You have to get out and you have to vote, vote, vote. And after months of targeting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Trump now attacking former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley more than ever before. At his rallies, Nikki would sell you out just like she sold me out. And in new TV ads. Drug traffickers, rapists, poisoning our country. But Nikki Haley refused to call illegals criminals. Haley firing back. If they're lying, it's because they know they're losing. It's that simple. And after hauling in $24 million in support last quarter, new pro-Haley messages are leading the advertising game in the Hawkeye State in the closing days. Imagine a president with grit and grace, a different style, not a name from the past. Nikki will keep the radical left from ruining our culture. Are you ready to win in 2024? Meanwhile, DeSantis, who has put tremendous resources into competing in Iowa, pledged to stay in the race even if he loses the caucuses. I'm confident with the organization we put together, the enthusiasm that we have on the ground. And issued a new warning about the upcoming election year if Trump is the nominee. If it's about, you know, Donald Trump or his legal issues or criminal trials or all that stuff, you know, I think it's going to be a really nasty election. Yet President Joe Biden is officially kicking off the election year, focusing his attention on Trump. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past, not the future. He's willing to sacrifice our democracy, put himself in power. And while Trump is using campaign rallies to call for the January 6th rioters to be released. They ought to release the J6 hostages. <laughs> Biden, speaking today in South Carolina, as he looks to strengthen his support with black voters, a key piece of his 2020 coalition, is delivering a wholly different message about the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The same movement that throughout the mob of the United States Capitol isn't just trying to rewrite history, January 6th, they're trying to determine to erase history and your future. 
Jake, today we were reminded of the unavoidable impact of weather on the campaigns here in Iowa. Nikki Haley had a campaign event in Sioux City. She wasn't able to get there from here in Des Moines because there was a huge snowstorm. Of course, this is something the campaigns have to think about as the weather for next week, a week from today on Iowa Caucus Day, uh, does look like it's going to be incredibly cold. That could impact voter turnout. Voters might not want to leave their houses or might not be able to get to those caucus sites because of this potential snowstorm. So that's something that these campaigns are going to have to be preparing for as best they can. Jake? Yeah, I've covered some pretty snowy, pretty frigid caucuses in the past. Kylie Atwood on the campaign trail in Iowa. I hope you brought some wool socks. We're coming up on a big night in the 2024 race. Uh, Wednesday, I'm going to moderate the CNN presidential debate, the Republican presidential debate with my colleague Dana Bash, Nikki Haley. And Ron DeSantis, they're going to share the stage, just the two of them for the first time, ahead of the GOP Iowa caucuses next week. The debate is live from Des Moines, Wednesday, 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. The GOP frontrunner in this race will not be at this week's debate and will not get to respond to questions about his record. One of the latest controversies he called convicted criminals from the January 6th riots, people who attacked police officers, he called them hostages. And a GOP leader backed him up. Stay with us. And we're back with our 2024 lead. In just seven days, Republicans will cast their first votes in their party's race for the Republican presidential nomination. This comes as this weekend, the U.S. marked the third anniversary of the Capitol attack. The U.S. Justice Department has said in updated numbers from January 6th that more than 1,200 defendants have been charged. 450 of those were charged with assaulting, resisting, or impeding law enforcement officers or employees, of which 120 were charged with using a deadly or dangerous weapon against a law enforcement officer. Rampant criminality that Vice President Pence this weekend said this about. To see people literally breaking windows, ransacking the Capitol, um, it, it just infuriated me. And I believe everyone that conducted that, uh, that riot at the Capitol needs to be held to the fullest extent of the law. Now, despite this, Donald Trump and other Republicans are now falsely calling these criminals hostages. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. They ought to release them. I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. With me now, former congressman and January 6th committee member Adam Kinzinger, Republican from Illinois. Congressman, what is your reaction to Donald Trump calling the January 6th criminals hostages? I mean, it's sick. We get we get so, I guess, numb to Donald Trump. You know, Nikki Haley can say that the Civil War wasn't about slavery, and she took a lot of heat for that, and rightfully so. You know, the former president just said he would have negotiated the Civil War. He calls them hostages, um, was making fun of John McCain. And I, I just the tough thing is there's just so much garbage being thrown out that we just become numb to it. These aren't hostages. These are people that broke the law you know, at points in Donald Trump's, you know, just like post January 6th, Saturday morning after his Friday night party. He had a little bit where he'd say, you know, they should be held accountable and you know, and I hear what Mike Pence says, and that's great, but it would have a lot more impact if Mike Pence said, and there's no way I can support Donald Trump as the Republican nominee. I think what you have here, Jake, is the reality that my former colleagues 
recognize that what they've done is violated the Constitution, frankly. They, they recognize the damage they're doing. And the only way they can get through this is if they win. You know, they always say, like, history is written by the victors. And I think they've made the decision that they have to win so that history rewrites their role in these days. And uh, it just makes me sad. It makes me angry. It's yeah. like a righteous anger. It's made me want to double down for this, you know, coming year to make sure they don't get into office. And, and just to note, just to add to what you said about John McCain, he wasn't just making fun of John McCain. He was making fun of the fact that John McCain couldn't lift his arms. And the reason John McCain couldn't lift his arms is because he was uh, a Navy uh, flyer uh, and he was shot down over Vietnam, and then he was tortured for five and a half years. That's why he couldn't lift his arms while, John, while uh, Donald Trump was um, avoiding military service. Uh, we should also note that Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik uh, parroted Trump's language yesterday on NBC. Take a listen. I have concerns about the treatment of January 6 hostages. Uh, I have concerns. We have a role in Congress of oversight over our treatments of prisoners. Uh, and I believe that we're seeing the weaponization of the federal government against not just President Trump, but we're seeing it against conservatives. I mean, they're, you know, she's calling them hostages again. Too. Again, these are not hostages. Hostages are the, the poor people kidnapped by Hamas being held in Gaza, these are criminals. Yeah, I mean, look, let's let's see if, uh, you know, Elise starts, you know, introduces a bill to make sure that people in prisons are taken care of very well, because she seems very concerned about that all of a sudden. The word hostage is ludicrous. She knows, I mean, look, let's not forget, and it bears repeating, Elise Stefanik was like Paul Ryan's kind of prodigy for a while. Um, she was a very, very intense moderate until... She got praised by Donald Trump because of her role in the first impeachment. And since then, she has been auditioning for his vice president slot. And if you would think, you know, that maybe she accidentally said hostages on that thing yesterday, uh, she didn't because she's been tweeting out that video as if she's extremely proud of it. And she gets reaffirmed by people on Twitter and whatever else she's on, Truth Social, um, telling her she did such a good job by calling them hostages. This is Jake. Here, here's the bottom line. The reason when people ask, why is the base believe this stuff? Why does the base buy into Donald Trump's lies? Because everybody like Elise Stefanik is going along with it. And they're not hearing from anybody saying the otherwise, except it's like me and Liz Cheney and, and Mitt Romney. And it's easy to isolate us and demonize us when you're too scared to tell the truth. And that's the problem right now is that second tier leadership in the party that refuses to say the truth to people. And we should note that Stefanik later in the interview also said should Congress should only certify the election if it's, quote, legal and right. valid, which obviously, but her definition of legal and valid is not dependent on facts or adjudication uh, in court or before election boards. That's right. That's right. I mean, she's she's been very clear. I mean, you know, voting against certification, that was not based on a real belief that it wasn't valid or a real belief that it was stolen. She knew otherwise. These are all just things they would. And I'm going to tell you, like, take the rank and file member of Congress right now, not the Elise Stefanics. They're scared to death of the next year and they're looking for ways to hide and I think that's where it's going to be incumbent on press and, frankly, citizens to ask them these tough questions like, do you agree that they're hostages or do you think Donald Trump would have good, done a good job negotiating an end to the Civil War without bloodshed? So after the Colorado Supreme Court um, took down or at least uh, announced that they were going to strip Donald Trump from the ballots because, in their view, 
uh, he had engaged in insurrection. So according to the U.S. Constitution, the 14th Amendment, he's ineligible. We now have all of these Republican officials in Republican states saying that they're going to take Biden off the ballot. Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, son of the former Attorney General John Ashcroft, he was on CNN today, uh, and talking about uh, remo- what happens uh, if Trump is removed from the ballot in Maine and Colorado. This extrajudicial means of removing people from the ballot is catastrophic to our country if it's allowed to continue. Because if Democrats can do it, you know that Republicans will do it. And if Republicans well, will do it, then Democrats point. will do it more. And he went, he went on to argue that, that Biden should be removed from the ballot in Missouri because of allegations Biden engaged in an insurrection, though when pressed, obviously, he was not able to provide any evidence for that claim. What, what's your take on that? Well, I thought it was a great interview, and it's, it's really how you do interviews, too, which is you bring the receipts. You give people a fair shot, and you bring the receipts. And, and the, the younger Ashcroft was, frankly, just trying to throw stuff on the wall. He didn't know his argument. He knew it was nonsense. But that's what you have to do to get reelected in Missouri, evidently, and at least in a Republican primary. And so uh, this is a dangerous moment, and I think it's important in all of this to call out the victimology that Donald Trump is feeding people into. That's going to be what over the next year becomes obvious to people. Former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thank you so much. Always good to see you, sir. Coming up next, CNN's David Culver with a group of migrants traveling and trying to cross the U.S. border. These migrants are from China. See the underground industry that's helping them move and why their journey seems so different than that of other migrants. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In our world lead, there is a surge of migrants coming to the United States from a country that has the second largest economy in the world. Thousands of migrants from China are illegally crossing into the U.S. southern border, more than 31,000 arriving in the last year alone, according to U.S. border officials. CNN's David Culver joined a group of Chinese migrants migrants on their journey to the U.S. to to find out why and the lengths to which they're willing to go. As soon as we pull up, they rush towards us. My mic not even on, but that doesn't stop this crowd of Chinese migrants from venting to producer Yong Shong. 
They're angry, having to wait in the cold for border patrol. This is just one of three makeshift border camps we stop at in eastern San Diego County. Alongside migrants from Latin America, at each camp, we meet dozens from China. The numbers reflect the surge. From 2013 to 2022, CBP recorded fewer than 16,000 Chinese migrants illegally crossing the U.S. southern border. This past year alone, more than 31,000. That's roughly double the prior 10 years combined. But unlike those fleeing countries in turmoil like Venezuela, Cuba, or Haiti, these migrants are leaving the world's second largest economy. What was the reason you left China? Their answers vary. His family is poor. Most cite deepening financial hardships, despite the Chinese government's narrative of a steadily rebounding economy. How did you get here? How did you get to Southern California? (laughs) Their trek north primarily starts in one Latin American country, where Chinese do not need visas to enter. To Ecuador. How many many of you here came through Ecuador? (laughs) 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 To really understand their journey and how it differs from other migrants, you need to see it in action. We touch down in Ecuador's capital, Quito, and standing outside of international arrivals, we notice this man. A Chinese? A hired driver, scrolling through photos and messages in Chinese. A few minutes later, passengers begin stepping out. They tell us they're from China and plan to go to the U.S., but most ask we not show their faces. The driver approaches this group, making sure he's got the right passengers. He's got a booking for them. We uncovered an assortment of travel packages offered specifically to Chinese migrants. You can pay smugglers who promise to ease some of the planning stress. For nine to twelve thousand dollars, flights, hotels, transportation booked for you. For twenty or more thousand, it's a premium service, getting you to the Mexico side of the U.S. border, skipping some of the more treacherous crossings. We drive through Ecuador's capital city with Long Tuan Wei. He shows us private homes and Airbnbs where Chinese migrants stay when they arrive. Long's lived here in Quito for five years and runs a travel agency. He has witnessed the recent surge in Chinese migrants. And with it, a spike in businesses catering to them, like this Chinese-run hotel. The owner estimates there are as many as 100 hotels in Quito that, like hers, host Chinese migrants headed to the U.S. Then take a look at this. They've got essentially a how-to guide to go from here and to continue north. And they tell you here how many days you should be preparing, vaccinations you might need, other documents you should carry with you. They even mention bringing $300 and hiding that amount of money because of presumably being robbed at some point and needing cash as a backup. It's advice Zheng Shiching could have used a few days earlier. Your parents still think you're in China? They have no idea you left? We meet the 28-year-old back in Quito after he was robbed at gunpoint in Colombia. I left China because I was not able to save any money. It was really difficult to support myself, he tells me. He says some employers in China refuse to pay him even after working. Even if they say the Chinese economy is strong, it is all about the upper class, he says. I wish I was never born. Living feels so exhausting. After saving up enough to restart his trek, 
Zheng heads to this Quito bus station, where ticket sellers hold up signs like this one in Chinese. It reads, To Tulcan, Colombian border. More than a dozen Chinese migrants board the bus north. We go with them for the four-hour-plus ride. On board, Zheng and the others plan their next moves. California. California. That's the ultimate goal. Zheng plans to stay here in Dulcan for two nights and then hire a cab to take him over the border. As a lot of the Chinese migrants are able to pay their way in taxi to get to the international bridge crossing from Ecuador to Colombia, we've noticed a lot of folks, migrants from Latin American countries like these over here, not having the money to do that. So they walk. In the cold rain, we meet Angel and Isabel from Venezuela. He said it's really expensive to try to cross, so they have to walk. Tulcan residents tell me they see hundreds, if not thousands, of Chinese migrants passing through each week. And because they're often carrying more cash, they are now prime targets for corrupt police and cartels. But like Zhang, they remain determined. As we return home, he updates us on his trek. Over two weeks, Zheng travels through five Central American countries, at times messaging Chinese-speaking smugglers who remotely coordinate with local cartels to get him and others on vans, buses, boats, and on flights. It cuts his travel time down to about half that of most Latino migrants. But it's costly. By the time he reaches northern Mexico, he has spent more than $10,000, with one more border to go. A camera we set up facing the U.S. southern border captures weeks of crossings, thousands entering the U.S. through this gap in the wall. Group after group, day and night, you can hear these migrants shouting in Chinese. They end up where we started, San Diego County, burning fires through the night to keep warm and during the day, expecting Border Patrol to pick them up. Just before New Year's, Jung messages us that he too has crossed into the U.S. and is waiting to be processed for asylum. America. Joining the thousands who've crossed before him and the many more to come. And CNN's David Culver joins us now live. David, what are the biggest reasons you, you found that people are leaving China like this? So we met folks down there, Jake, in San Diego County, and a lot of them were telling us it was for persecution's sake. They were Christians, they were Muslims, they were Buddhists. The vast majority, though, economic reasons. But this speaks to something, I think, far more serious, specifically within China, and perhaps even indicating a, a contradiction to what the Chinese Communist Party says is a rebounding economy there. And that suggests that within China, particularly post-COVID, and when we live through those very harsh lockdowns, there are ramifications that are now lingering. And, and they forced a lot of folks within the lower to middle class to say, we cannot make it anymore. We need something else, and this is the route that they're going. Interestingly enough, Jake, the numbers under President Xi Jinping specifically of those leaving China have sharply risen just within his control years. Interesting. David Culver, fascinating story. Thanks so much. Coming up next to another global flashpoint inside Gaza and a sobering look at the human toll that the IDF strikes are taking as Israel tries to hunt down and destroy Hamas. Stay with us. In our world lead, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza grows more dire every day. The latest casualties involve journalists. Journalists trying to show the world what's happening while risking their own lives. In the three months since October 7th, 
There have been at least 79 journalists killed in Gaza, Israel, and Lebanon, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. And sadly, those reporters on the ground often are also losing family members and having to document those deaths as they manage their own grief. CNN's Nana Bashir brings us the latest now. And a warning, some of the images you may see will be disturbing to some viewers. A final painful goodbye. Not the first for revered Palestinian reporter Wa'il al-Dahdoub. His eldest son, Hamza, a fellow Al Jazeera journalist, killed in an Israeli airstrike in the southern region of Khan Yunus on Sunday. Laid to rest just a few short months after his mother, brother, sister and nephew were killed in a strike on Gaza's Nusayrat refugee camp. This family's utter despair seems impossible to put into words. And yet, day after day, through so much loss, it is the words of Wa'il al-Dahdoor that have given crucial testimony to the reality faced by all in Gaza. The world should see through its own two eyes what is happening to the Palestinian people, not through Israel's eyes. What did Hamza do to the Israelis? What did my family do to them? What did the civilians do to them? They did nothing. But the world has closed its eyes to what is happening in the Gaza Strip. On Monday, the Israeli military confirmed that it had carried out the airstrike which killed Hamza and fellow Al Jazeera journalist Mustafa Thuraya saying they had, quote, struck a terrorist, though declining to provide further details. Israel says categorically that it does not target journalists, maintaining that the IDF is targeting Hamas in retaliation for the October 7th attack. But it is hard to reconcile Israel's expressed intentions with the overwhelming number of civilians killed in Israeli airstrikes. In Jabalia, bodies lay tangled in the rubble of this residential building. At least 70 were killed here, survivors say. Struck overnight as many were sleeping. My mother, my father, my brothers and sisters, all of them, my whole family has been wiped off the civil register. There was nothing here, no fighters. Such grief is felt across Gaza. In the central region of Deir al-Balah, there is little hope left as men dig with their bare hands in a desperate search for survivors. At the nearby Al-Aqsa Hospital, the only emergency care centre left functioning in the area, medical teams are dangerously overwhelmed. Now, fresh warnings from the Israeli military have forced doctors from several international NGOs to evacuate. Their patients left with nowhere else to turn. What I've seen today inside of the hospital is an absolute shame on humanity. I've seen children lying in their own blood. I've seen a child who was hit by shrapnel and doesn't know when his family is. I've seen a woman who was hit in the face by a strike who has waited six days, six whole days, to access health care because the fighting around her was so ferocious. So what I've seen inside this hospital has to end. The war has to end. As calls for a ceasefire continue to go unheeded, the humanitarian situation in Gaza grows more desperate. It is a reality painstakingly documented by Gaza's journalists. Wa'il al-Dahdouh back on air just hours after his son Hamza was buried, a symbol of resilience for many. 
We will not hesitate for a single moment. We will not stop for a single moment as long as we live, as long as we are able to fulfill our duty. But also one of determination for the world to see and acknowledge exactly what is happening inside Gaza. And Jake, today the UN's humanitarian office has expressed concern over the high number of media workers in Gaza who have been killed as a result of this war. They are now calling for a thorough and independent investigation in order to ensure full compliance under international law. But of course, just as Gaza's journalists continue to pay a deeply high price for their crucial reporting on the ground, civilians across the Strip are facing a situation that is not only being described now as catastrophic, but one that is growing more desperate and more dire with each passing day. Jake? Not of us here. Thank you so much. Uh, this just in, just days after part of an Alaska Airlines plane fell off mid-flight, leaving that gaping hole. Another airline now says it has found loose bolts on the same part in some of its jets, and that story is coming up. Just into our national lead, United Airlines says that they have now found loose door plug bolts on multiple Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. That is, of course, the same aircraft involved in that terrifying Alaska Airlines incident on Friday evening when a chunk of the plane blew off mid-flight, leaving a refrigerator-sized hole in the side of the plane. Let's get straight to CNN's Pete Montine in studio with me. Pete, tell us how serious this latest report is and explain, it, I, I called it a door, but it's really supposed to be called a door plug. Explain what that is. It, it's a door that you essentially can only see from the outside, normal window, wall, and seats on the inside. This is the latest from United Airlines. It has found dozens of the same, it has dozens of the same plane involved in Friday's Alaska Airlines incident, a Boeing 737 MAX 9, and the part that ripped off is called a door plug, essentially a sealed door that is only covered up on the inside of the cabin. United now says it found loose bolts on an undisclosed number of door plugs on its MAX 9s, a huge development as the investigation into how this happened is just beginning. From inside the damaged airliner to a Portland backyard, the investigation into the hole violently ripped in an Alaska Airlines flight has a new smoking gun. The National Transportation Safety Board has now recovered the part of the fuselage that ejected without warning only six minutes after Flight 1282 took off Friday. The piece tumbled 16,000 feet, only to be discovered two days later by a school teacher named Bob. I'm excited to announce that we found the door plug. Thank you, Bob. Investigators are now matching up the bolts, hinges, and roller bearings of the door plug to the structure of the plane to provide key clues about why it came off. The size of a refrigerator and weighing 63 pounds, the force of the rupture was strong enough to open the cockpit door 26 rows up. The noise of 400 mile per hour air audible as pilots radioed in an emergency. Investigators say the explosion contorted seats, removed headrests, and threw phones from passengers' hands to Portland streets below. Amazingly, nobody on board was seated immediately next to the hole or seriously injured. You heard a big loud bang to the left rear rear like in row 20. 
in Wuxingshan. I just knew something bad was going on because the masks had come down and I had never experienced that before. The plane, a new Boeing 737 MAX 9. It made its first flight just this past October and had been used by Alaska Airlines on only 150 trips. The Federal Aviation Administration has temporarily grounded MAX 9s until Alaska and United Airlines can make emergency inspections. We may look at the manufacturer, the design uh, of this aircraft, but we go where the evidence takes us. What is missing from the investigation is audio from the cockpit voice recorder, which was not recovered in time to stop its automatic overwrite. Gone are the recordings of the loud bang heard by passengers. It's high time that we improved the amount of data we got out of these cockpit voice recorders, including video. Investigators have uncovered one more key piece of evidence. They say this Boeing 737 MAX 9 had experienced pressurization problems three times before this incident. One cockpit alarm went off just one day before the incident. Following its own protocols, Alaska Airlines kept the plane from long overwater flights like to Hawaii. So far, investigators say it's not clear if those alarms foreshadows Friday's in-flight blowout. But at this stage, Jake, they're not ruling anything out. Terrifying stuff. Pete Montine, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Today, President Biden used another historic site for a campaign speech. This one, a South Carolina church where, where black members were killed in a racist attack. And there, Biden compared Donald Trump to defeated Confederates. See the protests that interrupted his moment next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the two top teams in college football are going head-to-head tonight, and one happens to be under investigation for cheating. Legendary sports commentator Bob Costas will be here, plus the new stinging criticism this hour at the White House, as, as the White House stands by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, after Secretary Austin failed to tell the president that he was in the hospital, in intensive care, and temporarily off his job. Days after the revelation, we still don't know why Secretary Austin was hospitalized in the first place. And leading this hour, President Biden returns to South Carolina, bringing his campaign back to the state that he hopes can save him again. He took the pulpit at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, not long ago. This was, of course, the site of a deadly 2015 shooting fueled by white supremacy. His speech, Biden's speech, interrupted by protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. You hear the crowd afterwards, folks tried to drown out uh, the protesters by chanting four more years. There was nothing subtle about the contents of President Biden's speech and his attempt to tie the ideology behind those racist murders at Mother Emanuel Church in 2015 to Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. A mob attack called black officers, black veterans defending the nation, those vile of racist names. And yet, an extreme movement of America, the MAGA Republicans, 
led by a defeated president, is trying to steal history now. They tried to steal an election, now they're trying to steal history, telling us that violent mob was, and I quote, a peaceful protest. President Biden also attempted to draw a straight line between the so-called lost cause of the slave-supporting Confederacy and the MAGA movement. Now, now we're living in an era of a second lost cause. Once again, there's some in this country trying, trying to turn a loss into a lie. A lie which, if allowed to live, will once again bring terrible damage to this country. This time, the lie is about the 2020 election. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is in Charleston, South Carolina, traveling with the president. Meanwhile, CNN's Omar Jimenez uh, is taking a look at some other Democrats, Democrats who are actually looking to take support away from Biden and are challenging him in the Democratic primary. Priscilla, let's start with you. So South Carolina Democratic Congressman James Clyburn told me yesterday that he's worried about the lack of enthusiasm for Biden among the black community. What was the president's focus today in his speech at the church? Jake, it was clear in this speech by President Biden and from the campaign officials thereafter that mobilizing black voters is what's going to get him that second term in the White House if he can pull it off. Now, the focus was twofold. On the one hand, it was an extension of his Friday remarks and preserving democracy and personal freedoms, both of which he argued were at risk under former President Donald Trump and especially if he were to take the White House again. And it was in this location, a critical one, that he sent that message. We're here at Mother Emanuel AME Church, where in 2015, a white supremacist killed nine black parishioners. And he drew on that painful history during his remarks here today and talked about the poison that continues today in white supremacy. On June 17, 2015, the beautiful souls, five survivors and five survivors, invited a stranger into this church to pray with them. The word of God was pierced by bullets and hate, of rage, propelled by not just gunpowder, but by a poison. Poison that has for too long haunted this nation. What is that poison? White supremacy. Oh, it is. It's a poison throughout our history. Has ripped this nation apart. This has no place in America. Not today, tomorrow, or ever. Now, this is only one part of the message. He also repeatedly underscored what the administration has done to deliver on issues important to black voters. That got a lot of applause from those black Americans. All of that just underscoring how important it's going to be to remind them of those issues as he goes into this 2024 campaign. And Omar Jimenez, uh, let me bring you in because President Joe Biden is not on the New Hampshire Democratic primary ballot because of this dispute over which primary should come first. Biden wants South Carolina. Uh, And today we saw the very first Democratic presidential debate uh, between two candidates on the New Hampshire ballot, uh, Congressman Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson. 
And they both, Phillips and Williamson, talked about how that dispute over party rules is being handled at this point, both Phillips and Williamson saying they view it as a form of voter suppression. Specifically, Politico reported the DNC sent a letter to the New Hampshire Democratic Party that reportedly referred to the January 23rd contest as meaningless and uh, to educate the public this will be a non-binding presidential preference event. Well, Phillips took exception to that and brought that up in the debate, saying that that letter is one of the most egregious affronts to democracy he's seen in his lifetime, as Williamson essentially agreed and said that this is a form of candidate suppression. Now, they also largely agreed around the idea they believe that Joe Biden cannot win in a general election. Take a listen to some of what they said. Americans want to turn the page from Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And I suspect most of you in this room want to turn the page to the future. We all know that. But I don't believe everybody knows that the truth is, if that election happened today between Trump and Biden, Donald Trump wins. It's the truth. The danger for Democrats is not people voting for Donald Trump. We could indict him 91 more times. They're going to vote for Donald Trump. The danger is people staying home. And while they did also touch on some policy issues like the economy and abortion as well, they both agreed that they wanted Joe Biden to be on that stage with them as part of what they believe is a fair democratic process. All right, Priscilla Alvarez and Omar Jimenez, thanks to both of you. Let's bring in Democratic Governor Andy Bashir from the great Commonwealth of Kentucky. He has just started a new political action committee. It's called In This Together, which will endorse and fundraise for Democratic candidates across the country. Uh, Governor, I haven't seen you since you were reelected. Congratulations on that. No small feat in, in red Kentucky. You said this pack is about supporting candidates who, quote, push back against this national trend of anger, politics and division. And I'm wondering how you define anger, politics and division. Um, just over the last few days, President Biden has called Donald Trump a threat to democracy. You hear how he's trying to tie the MAGA movement to the Confederacy. Um, is that anger and division in your view? Well, anger politics is different from talking about the policy stances or even the rhetoric of an opponent. Uh, anger politics is about trying to turn one American against another. It is wrong, whether it's under my faith, values, morals, but it is just wrong to divide our country in a way to, to just try to get a few more votes for somebody with this or that letter uh, behind their name. Uh, you look at attacks on groups of people, uh, kids. You look at attacks based on any, what, three-letter acronym that seems to be out there. It's this attempt to rile people up, not necessarily even at somebody running for office, but against a group of other people in this country. I think that's a threat to who we are. Uh, it certainly violates that golden rule that we love our neighbor as ourselves and that parable of the Good Samaritan that says everyone is our neighbor. I know in my race, and, and that's just here in Kentucky, that we saw every angry, nasty, scapegoating, hate-based ad that, that you could ask for. And what did we do? Uh, we pushed back with compassion, with empathy about standing up for the right things, and we came out on top. Mm -hmm. My hope is that sets an example, not just for other candidates of my party, but for candidates all over the country not to get into that type of uh, mudslinging, anger, and division. But, but how about this? How about you run on what you want to do for the people that you're going to serve? Can you give me an example of what you're talking about specifically? I mean, just I'm not trying to be cute here. I'm just wondering, like, what is an example of, of, of a race where 
where this kind of uh, hate and anger politics was used? Because it, it sounds nice. I mean, look, one, one of the ways you won your race was with a very powerful ad about a, a young girl who had been raped by a member of her family, uh, and, and it was about how she shouldn't be forced to, to carry that, that child mm-hmm. to term. Um, and uh, obviously that, that's not uh, a hate or anger, but it was a very, you know, I'm sure, yeah. you're, I'm sure you're, uh, your opponent didn't like the ad, and I'm sure he would have had some choice words for it. So give me an example of what you're talking about. Well, let me first say that ad was about empathy. It's about not being pro this or pro that, but having enough basic human empathy and decency to say, regardless of what I felt in a Roe v. Wade era, that victims of rape and incest, especially as young as 12, year old, 12 years old, deserve options. And what we saw are, are people across Kentucky saying, you're right, that, that this comes before you know, how I define myself. This is somebody we know. This is somebody's daughter. It could be mine. But contrast that with the millions upon millions of anti-trans ads that we saw in Kentucky, picking okay. on young kids that are trying to find their way in this world that regardless of, of whether our uh, different groups understand um, what it is, the, the idea that they would be repeatedly attacked, uh, called names, uh, a group that already struggles on, on the margins would, would see that type of negativity directed at it when we know it can in, increase risks of, of suicide is just wrong. Right. Okay. That's the type of anger politics that we see out there. And that's not where we should be. Sure. There's a lot of demonizing uh, of, of, of the trans community, especially trans kids. Uh, let me ask you about the demonizing of, of Jews these days, because we see a lot of that, not just from the right, but these days, a lot of, a lot of it from the left. Is your PAC going to be willing to call out Democrats who are uh, either engaging in anti-Semitism or raising money with anti-Semites? Is that is that part of this as well? Anti-Semitism is wrong. It exists. We're seeing more of it. And we've got to speak out against it regardless of, of who says it, whether it's through a PAC or, or, or not. Um, I just started the state's first anti-Semitism task force. It's based on ensuring that we have the right curriculum in our schools, but that also um, we are receiving good information that we recognize anti-Semitic symbols that, that some might not uh, otherwise see and that we are getting the best advice on policy that we can. Hate in any form is wrong. That's Islamophobia, that's racism, it's certainly anti-Semitism. And it, it's our job, no matter who says it, uh, to speak out and say that's not who we are either in Kentucky or, or across the United States. There's a new podcast out today featuring former First Lady Michelle Obama, and she said she's, quote, terrified terrified, essentially, that Biden's going to lose to to Trump. Uh, But take a listen to how she put it. What's going to happen in this next election? I am terrified about what could possibly happen because our leaders matter, who we select, who speaks for us, who holds that bully pulpit. It affects us in ways that sometimes I think people take for granted. I know you said uh, that your PAC is going to stay out of the 2024 presidential race itself. But are you afraid? Are you afraid uh, that Joe Biden's going to lose to Donald Trump? Well, Joe Biden and his advisors have won a presidential race. They beat an incumbent 
and they beat the likely candidate that they're going to face. They have a lot more experience in this uh, than I do. There's going to be significant support, uh, including from me, but there are going to be so many super PACs and other dollars that come in to support the president. This PAC is about candidates that might otherwise be overlooked, that are running in red or purple states, but uh, can follow a game plan like we had and truly uh, be victorious. And what they can do is bring life-changing policies to the states they serve. Take Roy Cooper, who's a friend of mine. He just expanded Medicaid in North Carolina. And I can tell you that Kentucky only has rural hospitals because my dad, Steve Bashir, expanded Medicaid years ago. Uh, Josh Stein is going to end up being the Democratic nominee there. He's one of the exact type of candidates mm -hmm. that this PAC needs to support to preserve that health care for so many individuals. Are you worried about Biden losing? Oh, I worry about every election. Um, but I believe that the president is going to be ready. Uh, I think you are going to see uh, ultimately a, uh, a, a united, you could call it party. But, but in the end, I think one of the most important things is speaking to how people are doing outside of the economy, uh, asking about the economy itself. I'll give you an example. When you do polling here in Kentucky and you say, how's the economy in Kentucky? About 60% of people say it's terrible and 30% say it's great. But then you say, economically, how are you and your family doing? And about 70% of people say, we're doing great. And about 30% of people say, not so good. It's about making sure that uh, we can cut through the pessimism because right now we have this pessimism problem between news and, and social media and actually get to the good jobs, the infrastructure and the expansion of healthcare that's happening nationally and, and happening in Kentucky as well. Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, the great Commonwealth of Kentucky. Good to see you, sir. Don't be a stranger. On the Republican side of this race, Wednesday is the big day for the CNN Republican presidential debate in Iowa. I'm going to moderate with my colleague Dana Bash. That begins at 9 p.m. Eastern only here on CNN. Coming up, political extremists serving the cabinet of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, why a far-right member of the cabinet called all two million Palestinians in Gaza Nazis as Israel intensifies its strikes in the Strip. Stay with us. In our world lead, as the United States government, the Biden administration, say they are trying to reduce the violence in Gaza, that mission was likely made all the more difficult by the latest outrageous and frankly racist comments from the far-right extremist Israeli finance minister and member of the Netanyahu government, Bezalel Smotrich. If a Jewish settlement should be established in the territory of the Gaza Strip so that there will be a Jewish presence there for a long time, so that terrorism does not grow there. If not, there are two million Nazis in Gaza who want to destroy us when they get up every morning, and we will wake up in 10 or 15 years to a new October 7th. Two million is, of course, the population of Gaza. So take that in for a moment. Two million, quote-unquote, Nazis in Gaza? So... Babies, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, old ladies, all of them Nazis. Meanwhile, a barrage of rockets from Hamas was aimed at Israel today. It's the latest in a string of attached attacks following IDF strikes that have claimed the lives of leaders of both Hamas and Hezbollah. CNN's Nick Robertson's in Tel Aviv for us. And Nick, these, these strikes are only increasing and widening in scope against the leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah, it seems. 
Uh, particularly the Hezbollah one. Uh, Israel hasn't said it was responsible, but it's got all hallmarks, a targeted uh, killing uh, of a commander of, of, of Hezbollah. And Hezbollah put up a bunch of photographs of him meeting with the spiritual leader of, of uh, Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, meeting with um, the head, uh, the former head of the Quds Force of the Iranian IRGC, the top general, Qasem Soleimani, who the United States killed in a drone strike four years ago. So this was a guy by all measure of internally in Hezbollah, he was the leading commander. Uh, he was killed and that to Hezbollah will look like an escalation. But then they escalated over the weekend because they fired 62 missiles at an air base, uh, at a, an air surveillance base in the north of Israel that the IDF has said actually was accurate and actually did do some damage, although the base is still up and running. But they're going to look at modifications to make it safer going forward, which which was Hezbollah's answer for the IDF, according at least to U.S. officials, for taking out and killing a Hamas leader in Beirut last week. So you get the picture, this escalation. And I think when we, you talk about those rockets coming out of Gaza, they came a couple of hours after that Hezbollah leader was killed. And I think that you can look at the two things together, that this was Hamas showing Hezbollah, one of your top guys gets killed and will fire rockets at, at the capital of Israel. There was no one injured, but all these things are connected. Um, and yes, on the ground, it looks like escalation. Will it be? There's that miscalculation element that can always lead to somebody making a move that the other side just won't tolerate. But they are tolerating it right now. I think that's the bottom line. All right, Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv for us. Thank you so much. And then, of course, there are the people, the victims uh, that Hamas took hostage who have been in captivity for 93 days now, 93 long days. They must not be forgotten. Uh, Daron Steinbrecher is among them. Uh, her brother, uh, is here in Washington, D.C. today, and he's going to join me next. In our world lead, three months after the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas, families and loved ones of hostages are still anxiously waiting for the release. Israel believes that 107 hostages are still alive and still being held by Hamas in Gaza. Let's bring in Dor Steinbrecher. Hamas kidnapped his 30-year-old sister, Doron Steinbrecher, from Kibbutz Kfar Aza. Dor, thank you so much. For being here, I can't imagine what it's been like. Um, you learned that your sister was kidnapped through a frightened voicemail she left saying, uh, they got hold of me, they caught me. Uh, what went through your mind? Yeah, correct. Uh, well, uh, on October 7th, uh, I currently live in Israel Center, not in the Kibbutz Kfaraza where my uh, two sisters and parents live. So uh, on the October 7th, around 6.30 a.m., we had a, a missile rocket alarm. Yeah. So I woke up and uh, opened the news, and I saw the, there was really mess and, uh, and alarms on the Israeli south area. I picked up my phone and uh, reached my family, and they told me that there is a terrorist attack on the kibbutz. And I tried to reach my, my two sisters, and make sure they're okay. Each one of uh, the... Uh, You're the older brother? Different. Uh, I'm the older brother. Yeah. Doron is my younger sister. And she was living in an apartment on the kibbutz where all the young, uh, young people and students and uh, uh, all the, the, the soldiers uh, live. Yeah. And... Uh, She had a phone call with my mom uh, around 10 a.m. 
She called my mom. She was crying on the phone, uh, telling she is uh, lying under her bed in her mm. safe room. Mm. After she locked the door and put a couch and uh, the refrigerator behind the door, uh, she thought it would be enough. It wasn't. They go in, inside her apartment, took her, and there's the voice message she sent to her friends. Few seconds when she's telling that she's been she has been kidnapped, and you can hear the Arabic. Uh, oh, you can hear Arabic in the background. Arabic in the background, and sound of shooting. Have you? Have you? Have you had any evidence that she's still alive? Have you, are there photographs or, or other hostages who were, have been freed who saw her? No, unfortunately not. And mm. All the hostages who came back, no one saw her. No one saw in, her. In uh, Gaza, and we didn't have any sign of life from us. Well, that doesn't mean she's not alive. It just meant it just, yeah. you know, they're all separated. Your sister takes medication daily, and I know your parents reached out to the Red Cross. Yeah. Um, to help ensure that she's able to get that medication. What did the Red Cross have to say? Oh, first of all, my sister is, should take a medicine on a daily basis, and probably she hasn't taken it from, from uh, October 7th. Like all other of, uh, of the hostages who need medicine and uh, didn't uh, get it. And my mom had a few meets with the, with the Red Cross. And she told them, my sister need to get her medicine. Yeah. And they told her that uh, we should uh, care more about the Arab people on the other side. That you should care more about what's happening to the people in Gaza? Yeah, and, and less about uh, our, our uh, beloved one who didn't get the uh, Wait a medicine. second. So your sister takes medication every day. She was taken hostage. She's a civilian. She was taken hostage by Hamas three months and a few days ago, or three, three months and one day ago. And your parents told this to the Red Cross in the hope that they would be able to get the medication to, to her, wherever yeah. she is. And their response was, you should be worried more about the people of Gaza? That's what the Red Cross said to your parents? Yes. That's Sadly. shocking. Yeah, very shocking. Um, you must be worried about your sister, Duran. I mean, I know there's a lot of fear about what's happening to all the young women. Yeah. Um, teenagers, girls in their 20s, Duran is 30. Yeah, um, we, we all saw the, the evidence and the testimonies and the, the article of the New York Times about the yeah. sexual violence. Uh, which happens on the October 7th on the party and after that in the Hamas uh, captives and it's very scary. Terrifying. Yeah. There are still people in this country and I cannot wrap my head around it who when there are posters of Israeli hostages put up on the streets of America not saying this is why the IDF is doing what it's doing not connecting it just expressing sadness that these people are missing. There are still Americans who rip down those posters, and I'm sure you've seen it by now, and I wonder what your message is to those people, and what do, what do you want them to know about your sister, Daron? I want them to know, not just about my sister, about each one of the hostages in Gaza. They are just citizens. Most of them 
pulled out of the beds on Saturday morning and taken to Gaza with no, with no reason I can think about it. I want them to try to imagine that all of the hostages in Gaza, the babies, the women, the grandfathers, it's their family members, their family beloved ones, which need their help. And then uh, to, uh, think about what they did with the hostages posters. We're going to keep covering uh, Daron, and we're going to keep covering the hostages. Uh, Dor uh, Steinbrucher, thank you so much for being here. Thank you here. for having me. Yeah, we'll be right back. In our national lead just minutes ago, a blistering statement from the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, a Democrat, after the defense secretary's secret stay in the intensive care unit. Chairman Jack Reed, Democrat of Rhode Island, wrote in part, quote, I remain concerned that vital chain of command and notification procedures were not followed while Secretary of Defense Austin was under medical care. This lack of disclosure must never happen again. This, of course, following the revelation that the nation's top defense, or defense official had elective surgery on December 22nd. We still don't know for what. And then he went home the next day and then was rushed to the intensive care unit on January 1st after experiencing complications. For three days after that, essentially no one knew that the Secretary of Defense of the biggest military in the world was hospitalized. The public didn't know. President Biden didn't know. Senior national security officials didn't even know. Not even the Deputy Secretary of Defense knew. And she temporarily took over his job while she was on vacation in Puerto Rico. In fact, the Pentagon never even told the White House or Deputy Secretary of Austin's initial medical procedure back in December. Here's what National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters aboard Air Force One earlier today. Uh, we'll take a look at uh, process and procedure here. Um, and uh, try to learn from this experience. There's a, an expectation that uh, when a cabinet official uh, becomes hospitalized, that, there's a, that, that that will be notified up the chain of command. There is that expectation. There is no, uh, uh, no plans for anything other than for Secretary Austin to stay in the job and continuing the leadership that he's been, exude, that he's been demonstrating. Let's talk about this with the former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, also the CIA director during the Obama administration and the White House Chief of Staff in the Clinton administration. Secretary Panetta, great to see you. I can't imagine you ever doing anything like this. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's something uh, when I was Chief of Staff to uh, Bill Clinton, uh, we, had, uh, we had a pretty clear policy that uh, any cabinet member that was going to be incapacitated in the job had the responsibility to inform the White House. And uh, I hope that they do establish that as a clear policy, particularly here where you've got uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, a very key member of the chain of command for national security. Uh, it's really important that, uh, that he inform the president and the national security team uh, when he's hospitalized. And obviously this comes in the middle of a tremendous amount of international turmoil. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today called the lack of disclosure over Austin's hospitalization shocking. What, what are the national security implications if one doesn't know that one's own Secretary of Defense is in the intensive care unit? Well, look, you know, it's, it's precisely because Lloyd Austin's done a, a, you know, a very 
a very good job as uh, Secretary of Defense uh, at a very critical time, uh, dealing with Ukraine, dealing with uh, Israel, dealing with Middle East crises, dealing with China. Uh, this is a very critical time, and, and he's been on top of things. But it's precisely because of that, uh, with all of these crises, that it is extremely important that uh, if he is incapacitated in any way, that certainly the president of the United States and the national security team, and certainly his deputy, need to be informed uh, that uh, he's being hospitalized. So, it, it, yeah, I know he's accepted full responsibility. I know he understands that he could have done a better job here. Uh, that's important. But it, it, it has to be made clear, not just to him, but other key cabinet members, that uh, when they face this kind of situation, the White House and the president need to be quickly informed. We still don't know why he was hospitalized to begin with. Uh, there's, a, there's a talk now of a need for transparency and accountability. W what does the transparency look like? What does the accountability look like? Well, you know, it, look, I, I understand that there are health issues that people feel are very private, uh, and that's understandable. But uh, the health of the Secretary of Defense uh, is a public issue. It's a public matter because... Uh, the public needs to know that the Secretary of Defense is in good health and can handle a very critical job that uh, when it comes to our, our national security. So, you know, as always, Jake, and you know this, uh, uh, the truth is going to come out uh, right. as to what the problem is at some point. We all know that. Uh, and it's probably better that it come from Secretary Austin uh, than uh, a reporter who's digging around because ultimately he does have to convince the public uh, that uh, he has restored his health and that he can assume the responsibilities of Secretary of Defense. I mean, even his deputy wasn't told that he'd been hospitalized when she assumed his duties. And one Pentagon official told CNN, quote, there are all these people around the secretary at all times who manage Austin and help him on a day-to-day -day basis, and no one had the wherewithal to even tell the White House? I'm surprised no one is using the word cover-up yet, unquote. That's not me saying it. That's a Pentagon official saying it. Why would so many aides fail to report this to, to the White House or to the deputy or, or to anyone? I mean, even just if you only tell President Biden, fine, but tell him. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to kind of understand that at least somebody in a staff position, uh, you know, uh, should have informed the White House uh, immediately as to what was happening. Uh, you know, during the holidays, some strange things can happen. Uh, having been through that, uh, people are on vacation. Uh, people are trying to enjoy a little time off from uh, some pretty challenging jobs. Uh, and as a result of that, I think there's kind of a different attitude that somehow uh, things don't have to be told uh, as long as uh, we're in a holiday period. Wrong. That's the wrong attitude to take. You've got you've got to keep the president and the White House informed of what's going on, particularly when we are dealing with war in Ukraine, war in Israel, uh, and uh, conflicts in the Middle East that could erupt in, into additional wars. Uh, this is a critical time for the Secretary of Defense. It's a critical time for our national security. So whether it's Christmas time or, or any kind of holiday, uh, Unfortunately, those crises never do take a holiday.
and they've got to be attended to. Yeah. Former Secretary of Defense and CIA Director Leon Panetta. Thanks. And I know you join me, sir, in hoping that whatever it is, Secretary Austin is going to be okay and that his recovery is full and complete. Thank you so much, sir. Always good to see you. We have new. Absolutely. We have new we pictures. Wish him. Yeah, wish him the best. Absolutely. We have new pictures just coming in from Texas. You're looking at the aftermath of some sort of explosion near a hotel in downtown Fort Worth. We're, yeah. we're, we're following the story. We're, we're going to tell you more. Uh, we're going to squeeze in a quick break. Stay with us. Breaking news now out of Fort Worth, Texas. Take a look at this video from just moments ago. You can see debris scattered around the streets. A city official confirms there's been some sort of explosion in the city's downtown area. The official went on to say there was a plume of smoke higher than the city's high-rise buildings. One eyewitness told the eyewitness told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that she saw people coming out of a nearby hotel with bloody faces and others being wheeled out on stretchers. Our crews are on the way to the scene. We're going to bring you updates as soon as we get them. Uh, stay with us. Uh, we're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. In our world lead, Ukraine's national police say that at least four civilians were killed and 38 others wounded after a wave of Russian missile strikes across the country today. Residents in the capital of Kyiv had to shelter inside the subway station as missiles flew overhead. Fred Pleitkin brings us this report from Kyiv. Yes, An interception that probably saved lives on the ground. Ukrainian anti-aircraft guns at work as Russia has drastically escalated its aerial assault. We meet with a mobile air defense unit currently working overtime around Ukraine's capital. It all depends on the weather conditions, the soldier says. If the weather is good, then of course it's much easier to shoot down a drone. At night, especially in fog, it's harder. We react very quickly. The mobile teams don't only use guns, they also have American-made, shoulder-launched surface-to-air missiles taking aim at both Iranian-made Shahed drones and low-flying cruise missiles. The teams move out fast and can set up and fire within minutes. This gun might not look like much, but it is very important for the air defenses, not just here in Kiev, but across the country. And when they get the call, they have to be ready in minutes to move out. The Russians are constantly changing tactics, trying to make their attacks more lethal, making air defense like a chess match, the commander tells me. They used to fly in a single trajectory, he says, but now they're zigzagging. A drone can fly, then circle, hover, go down completely, then rise about half a kilometer, then fly sharply down. They are now very maneuverable and must be seen and destroyed. Now, another massive drone and missile attack killed and wounded scores in various areas of Ukraine. Russia used some of its deadliest and most advanced ballistic, cruise and hypersonic missiles, Kiev says. Of the 51 missiles launched, they were able to intercept 18, the Air Force says, because they simply don't have enough high-powered Western surface-to-air batteries to cover the whole country. There were a lot of ballistic missiles today, the spokesman says. Such missiles may only be shot down by means such as Patriot systems. That's why the result is such. The mobile air defense units celebrate every missile and drone they manage to hit, yes, yes, while yes, understanding yes, the ones they cannot take down often cause catastrophic carnage. 
They are trying to hit our energy infrastructure and military infrastructure, the soldier says. But the most painful thing is when they're hitting civilians, houses, kindergartens. This is not in line with the customs of war and not in line with human morality. It is immoral. Fred Plekin, CNN, Kiev. Right, thanks to Fred Plekin for that report. Moments ago, a tornado watch was issued for the area around New Orleans as a strong, fast-moving storm is set to impact nearly every corner of the eastern and central United States. CNN's Chad Myers is in the CNN Severe Weather Center. Chad, what are the biggest threats right now? Right now, there is a blizzard going on in Kansas and parts of Nebraska, I-70, 80 closed. Uh, and I'm seeing pictures from YouTubers that are out there live streaming and you can't see across the street. With zero visibility. All of a sudden now down to the south in the warm sector, this is where the severe weather will be. And although we haven't had a lot of severe weather yet today, the severe weather is going to increase. The threat will increase after dark tonight. Those nighttime tornadoes are always the most deadly. They typically happen down here in the south in the wintertime. I know you don't think about this being a severe weather time of year, but for the Gulf Coast it is. This is exactly their time of year when they get this type of severe weather. And yes, you said tornado watch all the way from Houston, all the way to Biloxi right now. We have a storm rolling through Houston. No real big warnings on the storm at this point, but we have tens of thousands of people heading to a football game for the college football playoffs. So they are all seeing the thunder and lightning there. There are your blizzard warnings, winter storm warnings. There will be places with a foot and a half of snow. Now we move you to the east where it is going to be a flood event. There's already a lot of snow on the ground, especially in the mountains and in parts of New England. Now it's gonna rain. There's gonna be four inches of rain on top of that snow. That snow is gonna clog the drains and then all of a sudden we are going to get that flash flooding. Could even see coastal flooding because the winds are gonna be pushing on shore. Some of these winds are gonna be 50 miles per hour, pushing that water up into the Delmarva, up into the, the Chattahoochee, the Chop Tank, all the way up here, even toward the Northeast into parts of Long Island Sound. And then the wind could also bring down some power lines. Here's where the severe weather is today. Here's where it is tomorrow, off to the east. And then this is the area of snowfall we're going to see across parts of the Midwest, even up towards Chicagoland, everywhere that's purple, that's over a half a foot. And there are spots in there for sure that are more than a foot of snow. There's your rainfall down across the deep south, all the way from Florida, right on up into the Delmarva itself, the washing away of that rainfall. That's the area that I'm really most concerned with for this significant flooding. But look at the snow. And Jake, there's another storm on the heels of this just three days from now that will fill this place back in with more snow. Very active this week. All right, Chad Myers, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can follow the show on X at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you later. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.